Continuing our study of Mesechet Sukkah. You know what's so amazing? You're learning about, learning about a sukkah, and you're talking about the halachic parameters, specifically the height of the sukkah. We've, we've traveled back in time. We've spent a, a significant amount of, of energy analyzing the cherubim, God's presence, the Mishkan of Moshe, Solomon's temple. Anyway, today we're in Israel for the second week in a row. And we're talking not about the geography of the Holy Land of Israel, but its defining fruit. And the question is, how those fruits measure up? And of course, if you're just joining us for the first time, you're asking, what in heaven does this have to do with the sukkah? All right, so let me quickly give you a little bit of a, a recap, a, a refresher, and then we'll dive straight into it, beginning with a mouthful of barley. The notion that the sukkah has to be a certain height is understood. The question, of course, is what is that height? And the Gemara had a long discussion. <laughs> we, we began in the celestial heights, in God's presence, entering our domain, we ended up, as mentioned, in a conversation about the luchot, the heated discussion about the gold ark, the box that housed them, and the cherubim that were on top of them, a communications device, if you will, the satellite dish that received God's communication through which Moshe Rabbeinu was able to commune and receive the details of the Pentateuch, the rest of the scripture. In the end, the Gemara's conclusion was that at least according to one school of thought, the height of the sukkah, being ten handbreadths, ten tfachim, would have to be halacha l'moshe b'sinai. It would just have to be. We, we know this is the case. We can't find a compelling proof in the scripture itself, halacha l'moshe b'sinai. The Gemara says, really? The notion of measurements is by virtue of Moshe Messinai? Well, I'm not sure that works because we have a rabbinic tradition that indicates that the reason that the land of Israel is praised with regard to its produce has everything to do not with a good lunch or a nice bowl of fruit, but rather it has everything to do with the fulfillment and self-actualization of our destiny as a Jewish people, which is connected to mitzvot. And mitzvot have to be performed in the most literal way. And in order to perform mitzvot, literally, properly, we need to know what are the definitions. I'll do the mitzvah. Pray tell, what exactly do I have to do? So there are halachic ramifications that will identify everything from the action that must be taken to the particular size or dimension of which the action must be taken with or avoided. That's called shiurim. That's called measures. And in our previous Gemara, we talked about the notion of chita, of wheat, and we emphasized the idea that wheat was being spoken of with regard to the land of Israel because it was through the size, or rather, through the notion of wheat, wheat flour and bread, the size of a loaf or half a loaf, that would inform us how, in fact, we should be comporting ourselves as Jewish people, keeping Hashem's Torah, observing His holy mitzvot. The next of the species is seora, barley. I don't remember if we started talking about barley. We certainly didn't do it exhaustively. So I'm going to pick up the Gemara from Seora. We're on page 6, Davvav. And the Gemara is, at this point, hmm, just a few lines in to this new page. Se'oira, the barley. 
That's very small. What size could be gleaned from a barley, a barley corn? I mean, it's a tiny little thing. So the Gemara says, the Tanan, we learned in the Mishnah. This Mishnah is going to talk about the notion of ritual impurity engendered by human remains. So just to help you wrap your heads around this, in case you're hearing about this notion called Tumah, freely translated, or I should say under-translated, as impurity, but it really has nothing to do with something comprised of a, a single element or having other elements mixed into it, which is typically how we understand purity or impurity. Pure olive oil means there's only olive oil, no sediment or foreign substances mixed in. But this purity has nothing to do with substance or foreign toxic agents that are mixed into it. Rather, this purity refers to a spiritual reality which we don't experience. It's not part of the range of our human experience. It's part of our religious obligation. It's a physical phenomena that alludes to a spiritual reality that we can't see, feel, or touch, but nonetheless comport ourselves in accordance with. The ancient Greeks believed very strongly in the human mind, in ideas, and ideals that people would birth. They believed so strongly in themselves that even the notion of faith or gods had to be experienced within the milieu of their minds. So they created gods, many gods, just like there are many people or many magistrates different people calling shots for different things. And they created these gods in the image of man. They figured that there are many people who have many different responsibilities. There must be many gods who have many responsibilities. People have politics. The gods must have politics. People experience love, loneliness, People experience fulfillment, happiness, or joy. People contribute. Some people harm. So they created a pantheon of gods that does all those things. A god of love and a god of revelry. A god of, I don't know, good digestion. And a god of peace or wholesome interaction with others. And you would worship these different gods in different ways, on different days or different times, if you needed different things. We, of course, the Jewish people rejected this entirely. These gods had images. Some of them were beautiful women. Some of them were strikingly handsome men. Some of them show up in religious art, usually unclothed. Statues of these Juno-esque, incredible-looking people, which are essentially people who are projecting, projecting from their own milieu, from their own orbit, from their own reality, onto heaven, onto the ethereal. The Jewish people have always rejected this. I should say, we were supposed to always reject it. Unfortunately, one of the greatest, if not the single gravest mistake we made as a nation occurred just 40 days after God formally selected and made us the embodiment of his special children. After mass revelation at Mount Sinai, we wickedly, stupidly, and every other bad word in the English language, created an idol, a golden calf, and we worshiped it. It's awful, simply awful. But we were told there are no graven images. We do not worship anything that we can necessarily see or touch or for that matter, even understand. And by and large, the essence of God is beyond definition. The essence of our faith is one that is supra-rational. It's beyond what our mind can conceive of. God is not limited to our understanding of things. An example of this kind of supra-rational dedication, devotion, commitment, loyalty to Hashem is expressed 
when we fulfill the laws of Tumah and Tahara, literally translated as ritual purity and impurity, which in fact have absolutely nothing to do with cleanliness or filth. Spiritual terms. By the way, that's why there's no real word in the English language to translate it. Because it's not a reflection of anything we experience as people. So what's holy? God's holy. What's the holiest thing in the world? Some of you are probably thinking a Torah scroll. No. Yom Kippur. No. The land of Israel. No. Beit HaMikdash. Certainly not. The holiest thing in the world is life. Life. And we are permitted to violate virtually the entirety of Judaism to save life. And although there are three forms of devotion to God that we are not permitted to save our lives with, namely, the taking of another person's life, an innocent person, that's called murder. You cannot murder somebody else to stay alive. You cannot commit what is known as aroyos, the gravest dimension of sin, other than taking a life, is areas of intimacy, sexual misconduct. It is indeed the second most powerful urge within the human condition, only after the survival urge, and according to some scientists, it's linked to the survival urge. I don't accept that, of course. That's based on the idea of random evolution. I'm just highlighting the notion of how powerful it is. And yet, in order for us to maintain a sense of purity in our service to Hashem, we're required to give our life. And the last is a different form of intimacy, not carnal or corporeal intimacy, but the notion of an intimate connection to a super being, as in worshiping something other than God. And the Alter Rebbe says that truth be told, these sins are not necessarily the most cardinal in Judaism because in other arenas, when it comes, for example, to disqualify somebody from performing certain ritualistic acts for others, the violation of Shabbat is equal to the notion of worshiping an idol. So why is it that we violate the Shabbat to save a life, and yet we would not violate this notion of idolatry to save a life? says, This is in the realm of what we call a, quote, scriptural decree. It's not something which is fully rational. That's what the Torah says. And therefore, it doesn't subtract from the argument that the holiest thing in the world is life. Life, human life I'm referring to specifically, occupies a corporeal body, a bag of plasma, sinew, bone, and flesh. It occupies that container from the moment of crowning, although it is tethered to it prior to crowning also, and there is a form of human life even prior to the actual notion of birth. In fact, one is permitted to violate the Shabbat in order to save a pregnancy, to save a fetus. I once had a funny argument, well, tragic is more like it, with a, a, a leftist fundamentalist from the lunatic fringe who was berating me that there is a discussion in halacha of whether or not one should violate the Shabbat to save a fetus, of how far in a pregnancy. It's a discussion. The halacha is... All Paschim agree today that to save a pregnancy, to save a baby, you violate the Shabbat. And he's berating me and attacking Judaism for this. And I said, let me get this straight. In your playbook of morality, it's just fine if a mother decides to terminate the life of that baby for no other reason than, I don't want to have a baby. That's fine. That's moral. But for somebody to not take an extraordinary heroic action, because they're afraid of violating Shabbat, to you is the height of immorality. Ah, fascinating indeed. Continue to worship your idols, and I will try to be a servant of Hashem Elikei Yisrael. So Hashem Elikei Yisrael, our living God, tells us that in order to save a life, we do violate the Shabbat. 
because life is the holiest thing in the world. And that brings me to today's discussion. Because life is so holy, because a neshama is an actual piece of God, if you will, developed from the very essence of divinity in the most personal of ways. As the Alter Rebbe explains in Igeres HaTshuva, Hashem blew, not spoke the neshama into existence. He spoke creation into existence. The, everything from the cosmos to vegetation. Everything from, from the stars to the ants. And the mineral world. All of that was spoken into existence. But the neshama was breathed or blown into existence. And this represents the notion that the neshama is the profoundest expression of divinity. Let me repeat that. The profoundest expression of divinity is the neshama, is the holy soul. And keeping a holy soul embodied is considered to be an act of supreme holiness. But at some point, until the coming of Mashiach, we arrive at a moment of tragic separation where the neshama goes its way leaving the terrestrial world behind, becoming reabsorbed into its loftier form of existence, and the body, the bag that cased it, the, the, the mechanism, the convention, the envelope that it inhabited for 120 years, it's laid to rest. And what is its spiritual status? So the halacha is that human remains are impure or have tumma. They have this spiritual energy about them which can confound and can severely inhibit one's ability to experience divinity, godliness, or holy energy in an unfettered way. In other words, human remains are the equivalent of, well, let's just talk about this online relationship you and I have. I can't see you and I don't know who you are or I hope that you're learning Torah and being inspired by it. But there could be things that impede this broadcast. Some of them are physical things. You can't really broadcast if you're in a deep bunker, certainly not wirelessly because somehow the wireless, which is not tangible, does get stopped at a certain depth or a certain height when you're out of bounds. And there are other things that can be, be served to, to jam a broadcast or to impede a broadcast, not to allow for the electronic download to happen. So human remains, they emit a frequency of ritual impurity, which necessarily infects other things, not everything, other things as we're going to learn today. And because it infects those other things, in order for them to once again be able to receive the download in a straightforward, unobstructed way, there, is, there are mechanisms of tahara, things that are done, procedures that can rehabilitate. The simplest one is immersion in a mikvah, and we'll talk about that actually later on today. How much, how much of human remains actually communicates ritual impurity? If somebody cuts their nails, are the nails dead? Do they become ritually impure because the nails were once attached to a person? The proof is they were growing, but they really had very little life in them. And the proof is that you can cut it and didn't scream in pain. So is that a form of ritual impurity? How about a piece of somebody who died? Does that, in fact, broadcast or share or infect with ritual impurity? How much of this is a concern? So just like, for example, radioactive energy, which can't be seen, it can't really be felt either, necessarily is infectious. Infectious because when it comes in contact with something that's tainted or contaminated with radioactive energy, namely the subatomic structure, the nuclear physics have been tinkered with, any nuclear physics that will come in contact with that will also become infected as such or tainted. In nuclear reactors, they have pools of water which absorb radioactivity. It's known as heavy water. The heavy water contains within it a breakdown of the 
normative structural form, the normative nuclear physics. Anything that comes in contact with heavy water will it in and of itself also become infected. It will also experience a breakdown of its properties, its nuclear physics. And that can be devastating. That can be fatal. That can cause horrible illnesses, maladies, suffering, because the nuclear physics isn't working right. There are levels of radioactivity. What's considered dangerous and what isn't. I don't remember this. I'm a little too young for it, but I'm told that just before I was a boy, when people would want to measure for shoes, they would slip their feet into a, a primitive x-ray machine. They would actually x-ray their feet before buying a pair of shoes. And then they stopped doing that because they realized that the radioactivity was harmful. In today's day and age, when you get an x-ray for a broken bone or something like that, everybody's wearing these heavy lead coverings. And they cover all of you, and the technicians go out of the room because they don't want to be exposed to the radioactivity. And there's a certain amount of what's considered to be healthy or okay, and then a larger amount, which can actually be harmful. Supposedly, the cell phones we're using are not harmful to us. I hope they're right. I'm not convinced entirely. But you got to live. So just as you understand that there's a certain amount of radioactivity which can actually be dangerous or can actually communicate that same energy, which is profoundly unhealthy, when we talk about human remains, we also have a certain amount which is considered to be dangerous. How much is it? I'm so happy you asked. That's what the Gemara is about. So the Gemara says, Sa'ira. Sa'ira. What could the tiny barley corn, it's tiny, what message, what mitzvah measurement could we possibly extract from it? The Tanan we learned, etzem kisa'ira, bone, human bone, which has a different form of density than plasma or flesh. It has a different structure. As a rule, bone does not decompose or decomposes very, very slowly, whereas the flesh decomposes rather quickly. The plasma even more quickly. So when people have been buried for a while, unless they've been mummified, when you dig them up, you don't get a body. What do you get? A skeleton. If a human being were to be left unburied, God forbid, what would eventually be left? A skeleton. Unless you're in a sealed chamber with no oxygen, what you'd get is a skeleton. The bones eventually do decompose, but that takes a very, very long time. Now, how much bone, how much human bone can communicate ritual impurity? This is a very important question. Suppose you're in a battlefield, a place where there was a skirmish fought. Tragically, young lives were snuffed out. Heads were crushed. Limbs were severed. Splinters of bone could have flown about. If somebody walks through that area, is he or she ritually impure? This is the question. If you touch bone fragment, does that make you ritually impure? This is the issue at hand. The Mishnah says, etzem, bone, because of its unique nature, kisa'ira, the size of a barley corn, it's very small, is mitama, it, it emits and communicates, infects somebody who is ritually pure with impurity. And it does so, b'maga, by virtue of touch, uvamasa, by virtue of lifting its weight. That is to say, it's possible to lift something without touching it. How? Simple. If you have a container and you lift a container, and inside that container is human remains, since you are holding the human remains suspended, you become responsible, so to speak, for it. It is almost leaning on you. As such, 
you're becoming ritually impure. If there's a bone chip in something that you carried, you would become ritually impure, not because you touched it, but because you carried it, because you lifted its mass. The same thing would be true if you sat on the other side of a seesaw and raised something up. That, too, would be an example of masa. Now, ritual impurity engendered by human remains can be communicated in one of three ways. Bemaga, by touching. Bemasa, by carrying. And lastly, and this is unique, unique to the remains of Bnei Ubnot Yisrael, it becomes ritually impure by virtue of Ohel. Ohel means that you are found in a common enclosure with human remains. You're probably aware that there are certain Jews who are not allowed to become ritually impure, defiled, unless it's for their closest of kin. They're called Kohanim. They're the male descendants of the tribe founded, I use the word tribe loosely, of course they're part of the tribe of Levi, but this special family, this clan within the Levi tribe, known as Kohanim. And anybody descended patrilineally, because your Jewishness is matrilineal, but the ID of your specific Jewishness, your clan Jewishness, your tribal or hereditary notion of lineage, that comes not from your mother, but that's patrilineal from your father. So if you are a patrilineal descent of Aaron the high priest, you're a Kohen. If you're a Kohen, you're not permitted to attend the funeral or come in contact with human remains with the exception of your closest of kin. Which, of course, would mean that Dr. Cohen is an anomaly. The fact that it unfortunately isn't is because there are many young Jewish men who became doctors before they found out about Yiddishkeit and didn't know that handling and operating and touching a cadaver is actually a violation of the Torah. I was recently talking to a Dr. Cohen. And I said, hey, let me understand this. You're like an observant Jew. How did you become a doctor? And he said, let's not talk about that. He said, that was before I knew what it meant to be a Jew, and certainly before I knew what it meant to be a Kohen. So that would mean that even somebody like that, who has trained and graduated and gone through the process of internship and is now a full recognized doctor, a person like that could not do pathological medicine because pathology or the notion of autopsy which is actually a, an interesting part of medicine that laps, overlaps the notion of law enforcement is actually prohibited for a coin to perform. So the Dr. Cohen who became a Cohen by handling a, a cadaver would now deal with saving lives. You get the gist. So there are three ways you can become ritually impure under a common enclosure, and if you've been to funerals, Jewish funerals, you'll know that there's a little room, a little area, not under the same roof, that's built on to the building. That's the Kohen's room. Sometimes the rabbi's a Kohen, which is kind of odd, because he's like speaking from a different room. It's almost like a Zoom funeral. So the notion of a Kohen is a person who can't go to the cemetery, can't get involved, with human remains will be under the common enclosure. The notion of the Kohen is the person who cannot touch human remains and can't carry human remains. There's much to be said about this, but we're talking about size now. How much, how much of such material actually communicates ritual impurity? So the Mishnah says, etzem kisa'ira, that a bone the size of a barley corn would necessarily communicate ritual impurity, bemaga, with touch, uvamasa, and with carrying. However, it does not bring about ritual impurity by virtue of being under a common enclosure. Let's take a look at Rashi. Etzem kisa'ira, bone like a barley. What does that mean, bone like a barley? That means minhames, Rashi says, from a deceased individual. That means, if God forbid, there's some kind of event, an accident, and there's blown, bone splintering from a 
normal, healthy person, although that person may have lost some bone density, that bone density is not, in fact, a source of ritual impurity. This would have to be Minha Mesra, she says, from a corpse. But it cannot cause ritual impurity. Does that mean that I can be under a common enclosure with a skeleton? No, it doesn't mean that, as Rashi explains. doesn't mean that it can't, so to speak, transmit ritual impurity through the notion, through the ages of common enclosure. It means with this tiny amount. The notion of a barley corn, of bone, is only meaningful for touching or carrying. When it comes to ohel, when it comes to enclosure, Rashi says, Achiehe shidra, until you have a vertebrae, which is easily identifiable, a human backbone, oigel goilus, shlema, or an intact skull, because once again that's an image which is visible and is identified easily as a human, or reiv minyan evreha adam, most of the limbs of a person. What does that mean, most of the limbs of the person? A person is said to be endowed with 248 limbs, exactly what comprise those 248, nobody is certain today, but the Talmud identifies that number, we have a vague idea. And so if you have 125 pieces, you already have a majority of, one, of 248. And this applies for a woman as well, although women are endowed with several organs that men don't have, so they have actually more than 248. It applies for somebody who might have extra fingers or other kind of appendages. Nonetheless, 125. So if you have 125 independently identified bones, that would in and of itself serve to create ritual impurity, not only by dint of touch or carry, but also by dint of common enclosure. So there you go. That's, that's the answer to the question. A barley corn? That's tiny. Indeed it is. It'll be effective to communicate such ritual impurity. There's a very interesting Gemara that talks about one of the greatest sages of all time. His name was Rav Yochanan. He's the elder sage of the Jerusalem Talmud, oftentimes regarded as the youngest or junior member of the Mishnaic order. Some consider him a Tana, the youngest of the Tanaim, the rabbis of the genre of the Mishnah. Others maintain that he opens the period of Amoraim, or the Torah teachers of the Gemara. At any rate, Vyechanan suffered terribly, and he buried many children. My memory doesn't fail me, ten children. And he would keep, it says, a tiny bone chip of his child, of the youngest child, with him. And he would, he would take it out and cry when he would see it. It's, it's the, the piece, this piece of phys- physical evidence of the last of his children left such a raw emotional, had such a raw emotional impact on him. And the famous question that our, our rabbis ask, what's going on over there? How, how could he do that? Doesn't, doesn't have to be buried? And wouldn't that mean Rav Yochanan was always ritually impure because he always carried it wrapped up in a cloth on his person? And there are two basic schools of thought as to what this might be. One is that it was an etzem, pachas mikisa It was a bit of bone chip that somehow had come undone from his son prior to his passing, and he held on to this bone chip as a physical memento. Remember, they didn't have photographs once upon a time. They didn't have videos. That's all he had. Something, something physical. That's all he had. And another opinion was that it was one of his baby teeth. And teeth are like a form of bone. When the skeleton is there, the teeth remain intact. And children's teeth, when you, you lose your children's teeth, it doesn't make you ritually impure. So, you know, people sometimes hold on to a tooth. The Be'echelon happened to hold on to this tooth. And that's the meaning of the, the tooth, the, the little bone that he had. And then, at any rate, I'm just trying to point out to you that this has a halachic application in a very practical way. And the Gemara is telling us why the Sa'ora would be meaningful for the Jewish people coming into the land of Israel who are expected to govern themselves in accordance with the Torah's rules and laws. Hence, the Sa'ora, a very important and key element in measuring up for mitzvahs. The Gemara continues now. The next of the fruits is 
Eretz Chita, a land of wheat. Usa Ora, and of barley. Next one is Vagefen, and the grape. What does the grape symbolize? So the Gemara says, Kedei Rivi'it Yayin Lenozir. It serves, as Rashi will explain, as the measurement mechanism for the Nazarite. The measurement mechanism for the Nazarite. I guess we should start with who and what is a Nazarite. The Torah says that if a person wishes to aspire for a higher form of holiness, one can vow to become a Nazarite. There are two kinds of Nazirim. There's what's called Nazir Olam, a, an eternal, a Nazir who remains, he makes that commitment for a life. And then there's a Nazir for a certain amount of time, a minimum of a month. Now, I have to tell you that in today's day and age, the notion of Nizirut does apply. However, by default, once you become a Nazir, there's no way out until Mashiach comes. So it's not a life sentence or a life commitment. It's a till Mashiach commitment, which could be today, or chas v'shalom, Mashiach Kotari. And the notion of a Nazir is a person who, by virtue of the vow that he makes to God, assumes upon himself a different set of laws by which to live his life. The Nazir, or Nazira, is a person who will not come in contact with the dead, like a Kohen. That's a person who will not consume wine or anything that comes from the grape. And the Nazir is a person who will not cut their hair. So the Nazir will have very long hair. That's the halacha of Nazir. Now the question becomes, when we speak of a Nazir, what is a dead person? Or what are human remains? We, ha- we just discussed that. We just spoke about that. What exactly is the meaning of not cutting hair? Is a discussion for another Gemara and another day. But we're going to talk about now about the things that the Nazir is not permitted to consume in liquid form as a beverage, or in solid form as a food. Rashi explains it like this. Kedei Revius Yain. A Revius, by the way, is 2.9 fluid ounces. At least that's what Reb Chaim Noah believed in his Shiri Torah. There are other Allah authorities that maintain that it is somewhat smaller, and others who maintain that it is somewhat larger. But we're going to go with the median. Most observant Jews will follow the Shiratera of Rabbi Avram Chaim Noah. And so Rabbi Chaim Noah maintains that in, in um, our perspective, or by using modern measurements, 2.9 fluid ounces would be called a revi'it, a quarter of a measurement, an ancient Talmudic measurement, which is called a log. Like a gallon, but not a gallon. So the Gemara, the Rashi says like this, when we speak about a revit yain, when we speak about 2.9 ounces of wine, what exactly is the question? You can't drink a revit of yain. Oh, okay, Rabbi, how much wine can't I drink? A revit! How much is a revit? Figure it out. 2.9 ounces. This doesn't mean that a nazir can drink small amounts of wine. In fact, that's called chatzishir. Less than the full amount or a partial amount is also prohibited by Torah. There's a dispute between Rav Yochanan, who I just mentioned, and Reish Lakish, his brother-in-law, about whether this is minha Torah, it is prohibited or proscribed biblically, or it's a fence that was applied rabbinically. But according to any stretch of Jewish law, one is not permitted to imbibe in prohibited substances in any shape or form and in any amount. The question is culpability. And in order to be held culpable, in order to fully violate to the point that you can be prosecuted or held accountable, then there has to be the consumption of what is called a serving. And there are different applications when we speak of a solid serving, as in an edible, something that's eaten, and liquid, something which is drunk. Two forms of consumption. 
by the way, both proscribed on Yom Kippur. You're not allowed to consume any food, but there's a difference between eating and drinking. And the difference is in shi'ur, the size. So when it comes to the Viet Yayin, it goes without saying that 2.9 ounces is 2.9 ounces or whatever shi'ur it is. You cannot drink that amount of wine and get away with it. You're going to be held fully culpable and responsible. By the way, what practical difference does that make? Well, if a Nazar was in a circumstance or a situation where there was a medication that was needed, something that was life-threatening, or he even wasn't going to die, but the Nazar needed this, it's a critical health issue, there could be a major weakening of health that would eventually lead to demise, and the Nazar has a condition, can the Nazar take this medication if part of its substance is grape extract? So we would say, if it's less than a revius, then we could be lenient because, because it's a small amount. But now violating the zirut, that's another story already. We would have to necessarily know that this is a question of somebody's life being lost. Otherwise, you don't just violate mitzvahs for convenience or even for a sense of comfort. So there's a dispute with regards to the other things that are prohibited for the Nazir's consumption. Things which can't be drunk, things which would have to be eaten. Including the prohibition that the Torah levels against the Nazir with regard to wine, the beverage that's extracted from the grape, the grape itself is also, it's also included in the prohibition. Grape seeds are included in the prohibition. And we're going to hear about, and there's two opinions about this, but according to one school of Torah thought, blossoms, grape blossoms, and the twigs, and the skeletal, if you will, branches that hold the clusters of grapes are also prohibited by virtue of Torah law. So grape leaves, which today has made a comeback and is quite popular, in posh restaurants, are not permitted for an azir. Grape extract, grape seeds, not permitted. The question is how much is considered to be a full violation. And usually when it comes to matters eaten, the amount is not revit, but kezayit, the size of an olive. For argument's sake, a solid ounce. Now, a solid ounce is dense, and liquid is less, much less dense, of course. Its subatomic structure is much looser. That's why it's liquid. So the Gemara says that it comes, there's, a, there's this dispute in, with regard to the notion of a Nazir. There's an opinion that says that even the grape leaves and twigs and so on and so forth that are edible are also prescribed in the amount of a reviet. The question is, how would you measure a solid with a liquid measurement? After all, liquid measures and solid measures are different for a very good reason. And yet here, uniquely, the Torah would apply the liquid measure to solid substance. How would you figure that out? I'm glad you asked. Rashi's going to talk about that now. Rashi says, the Ikolamanda Omar, there is this opinion in Mesechet Sota, Mesechet Nazar, pardon me, on page 34b. The Chartzanim, that's Hebrew for seeds, Lulovin, that means like the twigs, the soft shoots, the Alan and the leaves, all of which are edible. Mitzdorfin, Lashir, Vias Yayin. If a person was to consume a reviet, this 2.9 ounces of wine, but it wasn't all wine. Some of it was, was grape leaf, and some of it was grape seed, and some of it was grape twig, grape wood, and all of it was mixed together. It filled a single cup. So the question then becomes, how do I know, how do I know whether that measured up? Because it's a solid. How do I find out what the liquid equivalent is? So Rashi says, simple. 
If you were to drop them into a container, a cup, filled with wine, you'd have to displace from a particular decanter or container a revius of yayin. And then you'll know how much solid equals that liquid measure by virtue of its displacement. The mass, the solid mass that displaces the liquid amount of 2.9 ounces of a revius, that's considered to be a revius, a solid revius. Okay, what does that have to do with the geffen? Says Rashi, You cannot compare the measurement by virtue of displacement. There's a word for it. I don't remember what it is. You can't prepare that form of measurement if you're using water, which is very thin, with wine that is thicker in its liquid consistency, especially the wine of antiquity, which was almost like a syrup. So what happens is that when you come to the top of the cup, there's a rounded edge. You'll be amazed how much wine can still go into the cup, even though the cup is full. Water spills over fairly quickly. Wine, not so quickly. By the way, that's one of the reasons there's this big deal about overflow of wine. When it comes to wine being used for a mitzvah like Kiddush or Havdalah, we like to see the wine overflow, especially with the Havdalah, because it says, Kos Yeshuas, a full cup of salvation. And we want our cup to proverbially run over. And it takes more wine to make a cup run over than it takes water because of the nature. And you'll look at this, you'll see the nature of wine. The wine, this, the liquid actually holds itself in place. A larger amount of wine can be held and a smaller amount of water because the rounded surface with wine is significantly larger. It holds itself together because it's a thicker substance. And the thicker a substance, the more you'd be able to fit into a cup because, or a container because it is able to overflow, if you will, without leaving the container. So the point is being made here that when it comes to yayin, mishum the yayin of who? Rashi says because wine is denser. It doesn't overflow or leave the parameters of its container as quickly as water. It doesn't overflow. It doesn't go beyond the, the lip, the edge of the cup. So the why we told Geffen, we're being told that the measure of solids that come from the grapevine have to be able to displace a reviet not of water, but of wine. And that's the notion of geffen. That the geffen, which refers not only to the grape or the grape juice, but refers ultimately in this image, in this mitzvah, refers ultimately also to the notion of various other substances, organic substances connected to the wine, as in the grape leaves, as in the twigs, as in the blossoms. So therefore, you'd have to displace the reviet, the 2.9 ounces of wine, not of water. And now you know. So that's how Geffen measures up. And that's why we're being told Geffen. The Gemara continues now. The Gemara says, let's talk about the next fruit, which is a te'ena, a fig. The fig, Rashi says, says Rashi te'ena mashi and what is the fig used for? If the kezayat, the olive, as we're going to hear, is the vast majority of shiurim of measurements when it comes to a serving. If the grape teaches us about the nazir and his unique prohibitions and the displacing of a certain amount of liquid. If the seora teaches us about a piece of bone, a tiny piece of bone density, 
and, the, and the, the wheat is talking to us about the kind of bread, and it's actually a measurement of time in which you'd eat a certain amount. What, is the, what does the fig teach me? So the Gemara says, the fig? The fig teaches me this. Te'ena, ki shabbos. This refers to the amount of a dried fig with regard to the notion of transporting on Shabbos. So Shabbat Kodesh, the holy day of Shabbat, is a period of time in which we, the Jewish people, have many additional obligations towards our Creator. There are 39 forms of work which we are proscribed from engaging in. Everything from bringing forth electrons, as in kindling or conducting fire, to building. Everything from taking flour, mixing it with water, and in, the, in, in doing so, creating a new entity called dough, which is called lush. The notion of sewing, or the idea of creating thread and weaving. We're not allowed to do all these things. And a whole slew of things we're not allowed to do. And one of the things we're not allowed to do is transport from one domain to the other. So if there's a private domain, you cannot take something out of a private domain and transport it into a public domain. And in a public domain, a real public domain, your own personal space is considered like your private area. So you can't go beyond your own personal space because if you transport beyond your own personal space, you're violating Shabbos. How much, how much can't you transport? What's the amount? So broadly speaking, it really depends what. It's like the original theory of relativity. If it's something of virtue, of value, you're not allowed to take it. If you have a tiny screw, which is tremendously valuable, and it can make a difference, like a screw from your eyeglasses, or maybe a screw from your wristwatch, you know, those little screws that you have to have a tiny little screwdriver to put in? So a screw or a bolt like that can't be carried on Shabbos because it's a keili. It's, a, it's an artifact of value. So we're talking now about food, though. Like, at what point does food become... So wait, I carried some food. If somebody had uh, some chocolate smeared on his finger and didn't wash his finger off before he walked outside on Shabbat, did he violate the prohibition of transporting chocolate? A smidgen of chocolate left on your fingertips does not mean you violated Shabbat. Well, how much does then? What's the amount? Excellent question. The Gemara deals with it now. The Gemara says the amount for foodstuff is like a dried fig. A dried fig? Rashi says, This is the amount for foodstuff. So whether it's food coloring or a piece of steak, if it's the size of a dried fig, you will have violated the Shabbos. Now, of course, something like food coloring could possibly be different because it might have, as a dye, a smaller amount might be effective or meaningful. That's a bad example. But food is food. Bread, potatoes, corn, fish, Meat, cheese, anything like that. You take out the amount of a kigrogorit, you violated the mitzvah. So if you take a slice of American cheese, you violate the mitzvah because the slice of American cheese, probably, if you were to condense it, would end up being the size of a dried fig. A dried fig. That's the emphasis here. How come a dried fig? Why not a regular? Why not the size of a fig which is uncured? So this question is discussed by the Achronim. The Sfasemis has two very creative suggestions for how we come to the conclusion of a dried fig. Number one, he says, as the Gemara is going to tell us shortly, in the end, shiurim really are halacha l'mayishamisinai. They really come by virtue of a divine dictate. That which was told orally to Moshe Rabbeinu. Having said that, though, the Gemara also is going to introduce the notion of these fruits 
as being an asmachta, but I'm stealing the thunder. I don't want to tell you about that until we get later. The second reason he gives is actually, well, let's just say it's, it's reasonable. And he says like this, especially in the ancient world, fresh figs didn't last long. But people did have figs all winter long. Figs were one of those fruits which were all cured. Dried figs was considered a basic staple in antiquity. Now, when it comes to the te'ena, we have fresh figs, lesser known, and dried figs, very common. We learned in the previous lessons, maybe two lessons or three or four lessons ago, that there's this notion of tafasta meruba loy tafasta. When you're looking for size or dimension, you can't overreach. If a person said, here's the size, here's the dimension, and there's a small iteration or a larger iteration, you can be sure, secure with the smaller iteration. You can't be certain with the larger iteration. Tafasta meruba. Now you're reaching beyond. Now you're, now, now you're, if you're overreaching, you're not going to be successful. So you have to reach for what's at hand. This we can all agree upon. This is certain. The smallest reasonable amount is certain. The larger reasonable amounts are in question. You said fig. What does that mean to somebody? It might mean a dried fig. It might mean a fresh fig. So for everybody, a dried fig is a dried fig is a dried fig, and its size is a size. Somebody says the size of a fig. Everybody would have thought at least the size of a dried fig. Not everybody would have thought the size of a fresh fig. So if I said, I saw something that was the size of a fig, and I'm saying, hmm, I wonder how large that was. It could have been a large fig, but I don't know. It was certainly at least the size of a dried fig. You get my drift? So that's tafasta merubalei tafasta. Reaching for the larger amount is not anything that's done with certainty, but reaching for the smaller amount is, well, it's called playing it safe. And when it comes to the other fruits, we don't say dried. So for example, with regard to the olive, we say the size of a fresh olive. Yes, indeed, says the Svasemis, but think about it. When it says olive, it doesn't just say zayit, it says zayt shemen, which indicates the olive that still has the oil inside it, a fresh olive. When it says date, it says dvosh. It doesn't even refer to the date. It refers to the nectar. It refers to the sweet juice, if you will, the honey that oozes from the date. Clearly, a fresh date that's filled with nectar, that's filled with fresh syrup. What about a rimon, he says? What about a, a dried pomegranate? Oh, we don't dry pomegranates. <laughs> pomegranates, as a rule, are not dried. Yes, there are some people that have pomegranate seeds, but that's not common. A fig is a fig is a fig. Dried figs are very common. Dried dates are common, that's true. So the Torah has to say, hey, when it comes to an olive, zayt shemen. We're talking about an oil-filled olive, a succulent, large olive. When it comes to the date, it says dvash. We're talking about the nectar. When it comes to a fig, we don't say that. So a fig must be dried. Pomegranates, pomegranates are pomegranates. When you say to somebody the size of a pomegranate, nobody says, hmm, if I took the seeds out and dried them and then put them back in the shell, what size would it be? Said no one ever. Size of a pomegranate is the size of a pomegranate. And so now we know why we have to have be introduced to the notion of figs, because figs become the amount that violates the Shabbos, the measure of food, transported in a public place or from a private domain to a public domain. The Gemara continues now further and says, so what about Rimon? What could the pomegranate teach me? The pomegranate is obviously very, very large. And at this point, my dear friends, we're really out of time today. And so I'm going to leave you and love you for this afternoon. We will pick this up, Ezrat Hashem, with a discussion of rimon, of pomegranates, and a different form of ritual impurity, a very different kind of ritual impurity, which is connected to the rimon. And we were also going to talk about the fat, succulent date called Kaseves Hagasa, and that'll be related, of course, 
to Yom Kippur. Very interestingly, it'll be very timely. And that'll be Belineder next week. The Gemara will then come with a big question to everything we've just established. And the Gemara will bring this in our next class to its successful conclusion. I hope you enjoyed studying Gemara together today. And I look forward to seeing you join for our next episode. Thank you.